Section 9 of The Rover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Karens, Naperville, Illinois. The Rover by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 9. On losing sight of the perplexed lieutenant, Peril discovered that his own mind was a perfect blank. He started to get down to his tartan after one sidelong look at the face of the house which contained quite a different problem. Let that wait. His head, feeling strangely empty, he felt the pressing necessity of furnishing it with some thought without the loss of time. He scrambled down steep places, caught at bushes, stepped from stone to stone with the assurance of long practice. With mechanical precision and without for a moment relaxing his efforts to capture some definite scheme which he could put into his head. To his right, the cove lay full of pale light, while the rest of the Mediterranean extended beyond it in a dark unruffled blue. Peril was making for the little basin where his tartan had been hidden for years, like a jewel in a casket, meant only for the secret rejoicing of his eye, of no more practical use than a miser's hoard, and as precious coming upon a hollow in the ground where he grew a few bushes and even a few blades of grass peril sat down to rest in that position his visible world was limited to a stony slope a few boulders the bush against which he leaned and the vista of a piece of empty sea horizon he perceived that he detested that lieutenant much more when he didn't see him there was something in the fellow well, at any rate, he had got rid of him for, say, eight or ten hours. An uneasiness came over the old rover, a sense of endangered stability of things, which was anything but welcome. He wondered at it, and the thought, I am growing old, intruded on him again. And yet, he was aware of his sturdy body. He could still creep stealthily like an Indian, and, with his trusty cudgel, knock a man over with a certain aim at the back of his head, and with force enough to fell him like a bullock. He had done that thing no further back than two o'clock the night before, not twelve hours before. As easy as easy and without an undue sense of exertion. This fact cheered him up, but still he could not find an idea for his head, not what one could call a real idea. It wouldn't come, it was no use sitting there. He got up, and after a few strides came to a stony ridge from which he could see the two white blunt mastheads of his tartan. Her hull was hidden from him by the formation of the shore, in which the most prominent feature was a big flat piece of rock. That was the spot on which not twelve hours before, Peril, unable to rest in his bed and coming to seek sleep in his tartan, had seen by moonlight a man standing above his vessel and looking down at her, a characteristic forked black shape that certainly had no business to be there. Peril, by a sudden and logical deduction, had said to himself, Landed from an English boat. Why, how, wherefore, he did not stay to consider. He acted at once like a man accustomed for many years to meet emergencies of the most unexpected kind. The dark figure, lost in a sort of attentive amazement, heard nothing, suspected nothing. The impact of the thick end of the cudgel came down on its head like a thunderbolt from the blue. 
the sides of the little basin echoed the crash but he could not have heard it the force of the blow flung the senseless body over the edge of the flat rock and down headlong into the open hold of the tartan which received it with the sound of a muffled drum peril could not have done the job better at age of twenty no not so well there was swiftness mature judgment and the sound of the muffled drum was followed by a perfect silence without a sigh without a moan peril ran round a little promontory to where the shore shoveled down to the level of the tartan's rail and got on board and still the silence remained perfect in the cold moonlight and amongst the deep shadows of the rocks it remained perfect because michel who always slept under the half-deck forward being wakened by the thump which had made the whole tartan tremble had lost the power of speech with his head just protruding from under the half-deck arrested on all fours and shivering violently like a dog that had been washed with hot water he was kept from advancing further by his terror of this bewitched corpse that had come on board flying through the air he would not have touched it for anything the you there michel pronounced in an undertone acted like a moral tonic this then was not the doing of the evil one it was no sorcery and even if it had been now that peril was there michel had lost all fear he ventured not a single question while he helped peril to turn over the limp body its face was covered with blood from the cut on the forehead which it had got by striking the sharp edge of the keelson what accounted for the head not being completely smashed and no limbs being broken was the fact that on its way through the air the victim of undue curiosity had come in contact with and had snapped like a carrot one of the foremast shrouds raising his eyes casually peril noticed the broken rope and at once put his hand on the man's breast his heart beats yet he murmured go and light the cabin lamp michel you going to take that thing into the cabin yes said peril the cabin is used to that kind of thing and suddenly he felt very bitter it had been a death trap for better people than this fellow whoever he is while michel was away executing that order peril's eyes roamed all over the shores of the basin for he could not divest himself of the idea that there must be more englishmen dodging about that one of the corvette's boats was still in the cove he had not the slightest doubt as to the motive of her coming it was incomprehensible only that senseless form lying at his feet could perhaps have told him but peril had little hope that it would ever speak again if his friends started to look for their shipmate there was just a bare chance that they would not discover the existence of the basin peril stooped and felt the body all over he found no weapon of any kind on it there was only a common clasp knife on the lanyard around its neck that soul of obedience michel returning from aft was directed to throw a couple of bucketfuls of sea-water upon the bloody head with its face upturned to the moon the lowering of the body down into the cabin was a matter of some little difficulty it was heavy they laid it full length on a locker and after michel with a strange tidiness had arranged its arms along its sides it looked incredibly rigid the dripping head with soaked hair was like the head of a drowned man with a gaping pink gash on the forehead go on deck to keep a lookout said peril we may have to fight yet before the night's out after michel left him 
Peril began by flinging off his jacket and without a pause dragging his shirt off over his head. It was a very fine shirt. The brothers of the coast in their hours of ease were by no means a ragged crowd, and Peril, the gunner, had preserved a taste for fine linen. He tore the shirt into long strips, sat down on the locker, and took the wet head on his knees. He bandaged it with some skill, working as calmly as though he had been practicing on a dummy. Then the experienced Peril sought the lifeless hand and felt the pulse. The spirit had not fled yet. The rover stripped to the waist, his powerful arms folded on the grizzled pelt of his bare breast, sat gazing down at the inert face in his lap with the eyes closed peacefully under the white band covering the forehead. He contemplated the heavy jaw combined oddly with a certain roundness of cheek, the noticeably broad nose with a sharp tip and a faint dent across the bridge, either natural or the result of some old injury. A face of brown clay, roughly mottled, with a lot of black eyelashes stuck on the closed lids and looking artificially youthful on that physiognomy forty years old or more. And Peril thought of his youth, not his own youth, that he was never anxious to recapture. It was that man's youth that he thought, and how that face had looked twenty years ago. Suddenly he shifted his position, and putting his lips to the ear of that inanimate head, yelled with all the force of his lungs, Hello, hello, wake up, shipmate. It seemed enough to wake up the dead. A faint, voila, voila, was the answer from a distance. And presently, Michel put his head into the cabin, with an anxious grin and a gleam in the round eyes. You called, Maitre? Yes, said Peril. Come along and help me to shift him. Overboard, murmured Mitchell readily. No, said Peril, into that bunk. Steady, don't bang his head, he cried with unexpected tenderness. Throw a blanket over him. Stay in the cabin and keep his bandages wetted with salt water. I don't think anybody will trouble you tonight. I am going to the house. The day is not very far off, remarked Michel. This was one reason, the more, why Peril was in a hurry to get back to the house and steal up to his room unseen. He drew on his jacket over his bare skin, picked up the cudgel, recommended... Michel not to let that strange bird get out of the cabin on any account. As Michel was convinced that the man would never walk again in his life, he received those instructions without particular emotion. The dawn had broken some time before Peril, on his way up to Escampabar, happened to look round and had the luck to actually see with his own eyes the English man-of-war boat pulling out of the cove. This confirmed his surmises, but did not enlighten him a bit about the causes. Puzzled and uneasy, he approached the house through the farmyard. Catherine, always the first up, stood at the open kitchen door. She moved aside and would have let him pass without remark, if Peril himself had not asked in a whisper. Anything new? She answered him in the same tone. She has taken to roaming at night. Peril stole silently up to his bedroom, from which he descended an hour later as though he had spent all the night in his bed up there. It was this nocturnal adventure which had affected the character of Peril's forenoon talk with the lieutenant. What with one thing and another, he found it very trying. 
Now that he got rid of Rael for several hours, the rover had to turn his attention to that other invader of the strained, questionable, and ominous in its origins piece of the Escampabar farm. As he sat on the flat rock with his eyes fixed idly on the few drops of blood betraying his last night's work to the high heaven, and trying to get hold of something definite that he could think about, Peril became aware of a faint thundering noise. Faint as it was, it filled the whole basin. He soon guessed its nature, and his face lost its perplexity. He picked up his cudgel, got on his feet briskly, muttering to himself, He's anything but dead, and hurried on board the tartan. On the after deck, Michel was keeping a lookout. He had carried out the orders he had received by the well. Besides being secured by the very obvious padlock, the cabin door was shored up by a spar which made it stand as firm as a rock. The thundering noise seemed to issue from its immovable substance magically. It ceased for a moment, and a sort of distracted continuous growling could be heard. Then the thundering began again. Michel reported, This is the third time he starts this game. Not much strength in this, remarked Peril gravely. That he can do it at all is a miracle, said Michel, showing a certain excitement. He stands on the ladder and beats the door with his fists. He is getting better. He began about half an hour after I got back on board. He drummed for a little bit and then fell off the ladder. I heard him. I had my ear against the scuttle. He lay there and talked to himself for a long time. Then he went at it again. Peril approached the scuttle while Michel added his opinion. He will go on like that forever. You can't stop him. Easy there, said Peril, in a deep authoritative voice. Time you finish that noise. These words brought instantly a death-like silence. Michel ceased to grin. He wondered at the power of these few words of a foreign language. Peril himself smiled faintly. It was ages since he had uttered a sentence of English. He waited complacently until Michel had unbarred and unlocked the door of the cabin. After it was thrown open, he boomed out a warning. Stand clear, and turning about, went down with great deliberation, ordering Michel to go forward and keep a lookout. Down there the man with the bandaged head was hanging on to the table and swearing feebly without intermission. Peril, after listening for a time, with an air of interested recognition as one would to a tune heard many years ago stopped it by a deep voice that will do after a short silence he added you look bien malade huh what you call sick in a tone which if not tender was certainly not hostile we will remedy that who are you asked the prisoner looking frightened and throwing his arm up quickly to guard his head against the coming blow but Peril's uplifted hand fell only on his shoulder in a hearty slap, which made him sit down suddenly on a locker in a partly collapsed attitude and unable to speak. But, though very much dazed, he was able to watch Peril open a cupboard and produce from there a small demijohn and two tin cups. He took heart to say plaintively, My throat's like tinder, and then suspiciously, Was it you who broke my head? It was me, admitted Peril sitting down on the opposite side of the table and leaning back to look at his prisoner comfortably. "'What the devil did you do that for?' inquired the other with a sort of faint fierceness which left Peril unmoved. 
because you put your nose where you know business. Understand? I see there under the moon, Panache, eating my tartan with your eyes. You never hear me, huh? I believe you walked on air. Did you mean to kill me? Yes, in preference to letting you go and make a story of it on board your cursed corvette. Well then, now's your chance to finish me. I am as weak as a kitten. How did you say that, kitten? Ha ha ha, laughed Peril. You make a nice petite shot. He seized the demijohn by the neck and filled the mugs. There, he went on, pushing one towards the prisoner. It's good drink, that. Simon's state was as though the blow had robbed him of all power of resistance, of all faculty of surprise, and generally of all the means by which a man may assert himself, except bitter resentment. His head was aching. It seemed to him enormous, too heavy for his neck and as if full of hot smoke. He took a drink under Peril's fixed gaze and with uncertain movements put down the mug. He looked drowsy for a moment. Presently a little color deepened his bronze. He pitched himself up on the locker and said in a strong voice, You played a damn dirty trick on me. Call yourself a man, walking on air behind a fellow's back and felling him like a bullock. Peril nodded calmly and sipped from his mug. If I had met you anywhere else but looking at my tartan, I would have done nothing to you. I would have permitted you to go back to your boat. Where was your damn boat? I can't tell where I am. I've never been here before. How long have I been here? Oh, about fourteen hours, said Peril. My head feels as if it would fall off if I moved, grumbled the other. You are a damned bungler, that's what you are. What for, bungler? For not finishing me off at once. He seized the mug and emptied it down his throat. Peril drank, too, observing him all the time. He put the mug down with extreme gentleness and said slowly, How could I know it was you? I hit hard enough to crack the skull of any other man. What do you mean? What do you know about my skull? What are you driving at? I don't know you, you white-headed villain, going about at night knocking people on the head from behind. Did you do for our officer, too? Oh, yes, your officer. What was he up to? What trouble did you people come to make here, anyhow? Do you think they tell a boat's crew? Go and ask our officer. He went up the gully, and our coxswain got the jumps. He says to me, You are light-footed, Sam, says he. You just creep round the head of the cove and see if our boat can be seen across the other side. Well, I couldn't see anything. That was all right. But I thought I would climb a little higher amongst the rocks. He paused drowsily. That was a silly thing to do, remarked Peril in an encouraging voice. I would have sooner expected to see an elephant inland than a craft lying in a pool that seemed no bigger than my head. Could not understand how she got there. Couldn't help going down to find out. And the next thing I knew I was lying on my back with my head tied up. In a bunk in this kennel of a cabin here. Why couldn't you have given me a hail and engaged me properly? Yard arm to yard arm. You would have got me all the same, because all I had in the way of weapons was a clasp knife, which you have looted off of me. Up on the shelf there, said Peril, looking round. No, my friend, I wasn't going to take the risk of seeing you spread your wings and fly. You need not have been afraid for your tartan. Our boat was after no tartan. We wouldn't have taken your tartan for a gift. Why, we see them by the dozens every day, these tartans. Peril filled the two mugs again. Ah, he said, I dare say you see many tartans, but this one is not like the others. 
You are a sailor, and you couldn't see that she was something extraordinary? Hellfire and gunpowder, cried the other. How can you expect me to have seen anything? I just noticed that her sails were bent before your club hit me on the head. He raised his hands to his head and groaned. Oh, Lord, I feel as though I had been drunk for a month. Peril's prisoner did look somewhat as though he had got his head broken in a drunken brawl, but to Peril his appearance was not repulsive. The rover preserved a tender memory of his freeboater's life, with its lawless spirit and its spacious scene of action. Before the change in the state of affairs in the Indian Ocean, the astounding rumors of the outer world made him reflect on its precarious character. It was true that he had deserted the French flag when quite a youngster, but at that time that flag was white, and now it was a flag of three colors. He had known the practice of liberty, equality, and fraternity, as understood in the haunts, open or secret, of the Brotherhood of the Coast. So, the change, if one could believe what people talked about, could not be very great. The rover had also his own positive notions as to what these three words were worth. Liberty, to hold your own in the world if you could. Equality, yes, but no body of men ever accomplished anything without a chief. All this was worth what it was worth. He regarded fraternity somewhat differently. Of course brothers would quarrel amongst themselves. It was during a fierce quarrel that flamed up suddenly in a company of brothers that he had received the most dangerous wound of his life. But for that, Peril nursed no grudge against anybody. In his view, the claim of the brotherhood was a claim for help against the outside world. And here he was, sitting opposite a brother whose head he had broken on sufficient grounds there he was across the table, looking disheveled and dazed, uncomprehending and aggrieved, and that head of his proved as hard as ages ago when the nickname of Testadura had been given to him by a brother of Italian origin on some occasion or other, some budding match no doubt just as he, Perol himself, was known for a time, on both sides of the Mozambique Channel as Point de Fer, after an incident when in the presence of the brothers he played at arm's length with the windpipe of an obstemperous sorcerer with an enormous girth of chest the villagers brought out food with alacrity and the sorcerer was never the same man again it had been a great display yes no doubt it was testadura the young neophyte of the order where and how picked up peril never heard Strange to the camp, simple-minded and much impressed by the swaggering, cosmopolitan company in which he found himself. He had attached himself to peril in preference to some of his own countrymen, of whom there were several in that band, and used to run after him like a little dog and certainly had acted a good shipmate's part on occasion of that wound, which had neither killed nor cowed peril, but merely had given him an opportunity to reflect at leisure on the conduct of his own life that first suspicion of that amazing fact had intruded on peril while he was bandaging that head by the light of the smoky lamp since the fellow still lived it was not in peril to finish him off or let him die unattended like a dog and then this was a sailor his being english was no obstacle to the development of peril's mixed feelings in which hatred certainly had no place amongst the members of the brotherhood it was the englishman who he preferred 
he had also found amongst them that particular and loyal appreciation which a frenchman of character and ability will receive from an englishman sooner than from any other nation peril had at times been a leader without ever trying for it very much for he was not ambitious the lead used to fall to him mostly at a time of crisis of some sort and when he had got the lead it was on the englishman that he used to depend most and so that youngster had turned into this english man-of-war's man in the fact itself there was nothing impossible you found brothers of the coast in all sorts of ships and in all sorts of places peril had found one once in a very ancient and hopeless cripple practising the profession of a beggar on the steps of manila cathedral and had left himself the richer of the two broad gold pieces to add to his secret hoard there was a tale of a brother of the coast having become a mandarin in china and peril believed it one never knew where and in what position one would find a brother of the coast the wonderful thing was that this one should have come to seek him out to put himself in the way of his cudgel peril's greatest concern had been all through that sunday morning to conceal the whole adventure from lieutenant Rayal as against a wearer of epaulettes mutual protection was the first duty between the brothers of the coast the unexpectedness of that claim coming to him after twenty years invested it with an extraordinary strength what he would do with the fellow he didn't know but since that morning the situation had changed peril had received the lieutenant's confidence and had got on terms with him in a special way he fell into profound thought he muttered without rousing himself perrault was annoyed a little at not having been recognized he could not conceive how difficult it would have been for simons to identify this portly deliberate person with a white head of hair as the object of his youthful admiration the black ringleted french brother in the prime of life of whom everybody thought so much peril was roused by hearing the other declare suddenly i am an englishman i am i am not going to knuckle under to anybody what are you going to do with me i will do what i please said peril who had been asking himself exactly the same question well then be quick about it whatever it is i don't care a damn what you do but be quick about it he tried to be empathetic but as a matter of fact the last words came out in a faltering tone and old peril was touched he thought that if he were to let him drink the mugful standing there it would make him dead drunk but he took a risk so he said only allons drink the other did not wait for a second invitation but could not control very well the movements of his arm extended towards the mug peril raised his on high Trinquons, eh? he proposed but in his precarious condition the englishman remained unforgiving i'm damned if i do he said indignantly but so low that peril had to turn his ear to catch the words you will have to explain to me first what you meant by knocking me on the head he drank staring all the time at peril in a manner which was meant to give offence but which struck peril as so childlike that he burst into a laugh sacra imbecile did i not tell you it was because of the tartan if it hadn't been for the tartan i would have hidden from you i would have crouched behind a bush like a what do you call them the yves the other who was feeling the effect of the drink stared with frank incredulity you are of no account continued peril 
ah if you had been an officer i would have gone for you anywhere did you say your officer went up the gully simon sighed deeply and easily that's the way he went we had heard on board of a house thereabouts oh he went for the house said peril well if he did get there he must be very sorry for himself there is a half a company of infantry billeted in that farm this inspired fib went down easily with the english sailor soldiers were stationed in many parts of the coast as any seamen of the blockading fleet knew very well to the many expressions which had passed over the face of that man recovering from a long period of unconsciousness there was added a shade of dismay what the devil have they stuck soldiers on this piece of rock for he asked oh a signaling post and things like that i'm not likely to tell you everything why you might escape that phrase reached the soberest spot in the whole of simon's individuality things were happening then mr bolt was a prisoner but the main idea evoked in his confused mind was that he would be given up to these soldiers before very long the prospect of captivity made his heart sink and he resolved to give as much trouble as he could you will have to get some of these soldiers to carry me up i won't walk i won't not after having had my brains nearly knocked out from behind i tell you straight i won't walk not a step they will have to carry me ashore peril only shook his head deprecatingly now you go and get a corporal with a file of men insisted simons obstinately i want to be made a proper prisoner of who the devil are you you had no right to interfere i believe you are a civilian a common marinero whatever you call yourself you look to me a pretty fishy marinero at that where did you learn english in prison eh you ain't going to keep me in this damned dog hole on board your rubbishy tartan go and get that corporal i tell you he looked suddenly very tired and only murmured i am an englishman i am peril's patience was positively angelic don't you talk about the tartan he said impressively making his words as distinct as possible i told you she was not like other tartans that is because she is a courier boat every time she goes to sea she makes a pied de nez what you call a thumb to the nose to all your english cruisers i do not mind telling you because you are my prisoner you will soon learn french now who are you the caretaker of this thing or what asked the undaunted simons but peril's mysterious silence seemed to intimidate him at last he became dejected and began to curse in a languid tone all boat expeditions the coxswain of the gig and his own infernal luck peril sat alert and attentive like a man interested in an experiment while after a moment simon's face began to look as if he had been hit with the club again but not as hard as before a film came over his round eyes and the words fishy marinero made the way out of his lips in a sort of deathbed voice yet such was the hardness of his head that he actually rallied enough to address peril in an ingratiating tone come grandfather he tried to push the mug across the table and upset it come let us finish what's in the tiny bottle of yours no said peril drawing the demijohn to his side of the table and putting the cork in no repeated simons in an unbelieving voice and looking at the demijohn fixedly you must be a tinker he tried to say something more under Perrault's watchful eyes, failed once or twice, and suddenly pronounced the word cochon so correctly as to make old Peril start. After that, it was no use looking at him any more. Peril busied himself in locking up the demijohn 
and the mugs. When he turned round, most of the prisoner's body was extended over the table, and no sound came from it, not even a snore. When Peril got outside, pulling to the door of the cuddy behind him, Michel hastened from forward to receive the master's orders. But Peril stood so long on the after-deck, meditating profoundly, with his hand over his mouth, that Michel became fidgety and ventured a cheerful, It looks as if he were not going to die. He is dead, said Peril, with grim jocularity. Dead drunk. And you very likely will not see me till tomorrow sometime. But what am I to do? asked Michel timidly. Nothing, said Peril. Of course you must not let him set fire to the tartan. But suppose, insisted Michel, he should give signs of escaping. If you see him trying to escape, said Peril with mock solemnity, then Michel, it will be a sign for you to get out of his way as quickly as you can. A man who would try to escape with a head like this on him would just swallow you at one mouthful. He picked up his cudgel and, stepping ashore, went off without as much as a look at his faithful henchman. Michel listened to him scrambling amongst the stones, and his habitual, amiably vacant face acquired a sort of dignity from the utter and absolute blankness that came over it. End of section 9. Recording by John Karens, Naperville, Illinois.